Good morning, Oakwood family. So glad that you're here this morning with us. And whether you're in the room or online, thank you for being with us this morning. We're going to continue in our series in 1 Peter. So uh, if you have your Bible this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, if you brought your phone or your tablet, you want to follow along that way, just download the Oakwood app. Go to Sermon Notes, and all the notes will be there uh, for you to access, take notes on the sermon, read the scriptures, and do all those kind of things. Before we get into it this morning, though, I just want to reiterate uh, something that Corey had said just a few minutes ago. We still need volunteers for Ignite the Night. Uh, that is this Friday night. Uh, right here at the church, and I know that's a community thing. There's many churches and many Christians and many different people involved with that, uh, but we are hosting it here at our facility, and we really need your help. So we still have uh, room for 20 buddies. Or, um, that's the ones that go with the special needs participants throughout the night. It's a great way to serve, um, and it's just really special. The other thing is that uh, you can do the red carpet. You can cheer them on as they get their crowns and tiaras, and, and they come down the red carpet. We need more people for that. Um, there's just several ways for you to be involved. I know Corey's still looking for a few characters. You wear these character outfits and pose for pictures and do that kind of stuff. So lots of ways to be involved. But here's the key. You have to sign up at IgniteNightEnid.com. IgniteNightEnid.com, and you have to sign up before 5 o'clock today. We have the 5 p.m. today, they're pulling it off, off the website, the way to sign up. So we got to have time to do all the stuff, run the background checks, do all that kind of stuff. So please help us out with that today. Church, let's have Oakwood step up and meet the need. It's going to be a great night to serve the kingdom and to uh, remind people with special needs that they are special to God. So uh, be sure to be a part of that uh, this Friday night. So we've been in this series on, on 1 Peter. Uh, th this is week six of the series. We're going to finish chapter three today. And um, man, just a great reminder to Christians, all of these different things, that all these different themes that we've been talking about, that, that Jesus is our living hope, that we have a call to be holy. We actually have a call to be a, a royal priesthood to actually to be intercessors, to be praying for people, to be presenting the gospel for people to God himself. We are, we are called by God to live for him. We're called maybe to even suffer some things in life for the greater kingdom purpose. Last week we talked about this, about this idea of submission. Uh, last Two weeks ago about submission to authority. Last week about submission in our relationships and in our marriages. So it's been really, really great. Uh, today we're just going to continue on in chapter 3 beginning with verse 8. And so uh, follow along with me as we read this this morning, 1 Peter 3, beginning with verse 8. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good 
than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So much to uh, cover this morning, so let's get right to it this morning. How can we uh, apply uh, some of this text to our lives? Because, you know, it's one thing to be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers as well. The first thing we need to understand and that we need to walk out this morning, we need to walk out the Christian faith and how we relate to people. That's the first call of this passage, to walk out the Christian faith and how we relate to other people. Look what it says there in verse 8. It says, finally, all of you, and that, that term, all of you, is talking to the believers, to the Christians. He says, hey, hey, finally, all of you, be like-minded. Now, some people read that, and they're like, be like-minded. What does that mean, that Christians, they can't have other thoughts? That the Christians all have to think exactly the same? You know, that there's got to be this uniformity when you're a Christian, that you, 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 everyone has to think the same thoughts. And that's not really what it's saying here. What he's saying here is that the church and the Christians should have a unity of mind, a unity of mindset, which is accomplished through Christ Jesus. How do you take a church and people of great diversity, think about this, different backgrounds and, and different socioeconomic statuses, you know, different thoughts and different families and different patterns, and you bring all that into this thing that God calls the church, and we're supposed to have unity. Remember, Jesus prayed for unity in the upper room with the disciples. He prayed that the church and that his disciples and believers would have unity together. And so that's what he's saying here, that all of you would be like-minded. You have unity of mind. And in that, you would be sympathetic toward other people, that you would love one another, that you would be compassionate and humble. I wonder if unity is easier when you practice these things. Would it be easier for God's people to be unified if they were sympathetic, loving one another, compassionate and humble, not prideful? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repair, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We are called by God to have this unity of mindset. We are called by God to do the right thing. And in doing so, we will be blessed. We are called by God to practice these qualities when we relate to one another. And he's specifically talking about Christians and the church here. That with our like-mindedness, we would practice things like sympathy and love and compassion and humility. And then when, when someone may, may sin against us, it says that we're not going to repay them evil for evil. We're not, you know, hey, you insulted me, so I'm going to throw it right back at you. But then we're going to rise above. We're going to repay evil with blessing. Walk out the Christian faith and how you relate to people. Second thing this morning. We must deliberately decide to love our life in Christ. A deliberate decision to love our life in Christ. Look what it says at the beginning of verse 10. It says, for whoever would love life and see good days. 
You might notice there that there's quotation marks, and that's because Peter's actually quoting the Old Testament here. And he does this throughout the book. Uh, right here, he's referencing Psalm chapter 34, verses 12 through 16. That's, that's directly from the Old Testament there. And, and it begins there by saying, whoever would love life and see good days. And so he's taking an Old Testament principle from, from Christians back then, and, and they weren't called Christians, they were, they were Israelites, and they were following God and God's laws and trying to keep it together and, and trying to be a holy people set apart and different from the world, trying to please God. And he's taking that concept of how those people would love their lives and see good days, and now he's saying, through Christ Jesus, how all the more should we live a good life and have good days? He's talking here about the joy that we should have in Christ as God's people. That we should be a people that are found to be characterized by a people who speak and live positive about the future and positive about our lives in Christ Jesus. That we are generally characterized by joy. That we, that we, that we love our lives because of what Christ has done for us. Now let me tell you how Christians live their lives though. Sometimes, and, and this is a decision that we make, it's a conscious decision that we make. Sometimes we can decide to live life like we endure life, like it's some kind of burden. You ever met that person? Right? Love hanging with them, right? Yeah. But there's some Christians that live that way. It just seems like, oh, just life, it just endure life. It's just such a it's such a burden to me. You can also make the decision to escape life. I think we have some escape artists in God's church. Some people just live this life like they're trying to escape, like they're running from the battle. They don't ever want to face up to their stuff. They don't ever want to re really repent and deal with their sinfulness. They don't want to deal with the patterns in their life that they've established, and they continue to struggle. And, and, and they just want to escape. They just, they just want to decide, hey, I want to escape in life. And again, it's just this negative mindset. It's this negativity that seems to follow them wherever they go. And so you can decide to endure life, you can decide to escape life, or you can decide to enjoy life. And you enjoy life because you know God is in control, that he is your heavenly father, that he loves you and loves you so much that he would send Jesus as a sacrifice. And because of that, Peter is saying here, hey, just like in the Old Testament, what the Israelites were, caused, were, were called to do, how much more are Christians today because of what Jesus has done for us? Whoever would love their life and see good days People like being around people who are positive. And the church and Christians should be like a magnet to the world today because of that. Now, Peter, I mean, you, you've, re you've read the rest of this book and, and, and the part leading up to this and the part even after it. I mean, Peter's not trying to be unrealistic here. Peter's not saying, hey, fairy tale life for Christians, nothing bad ever happens to you, nothing ever, you know, he's not talking about that at all. He, he's not trying to paint this picture that, that, that we need to be unrealistic about life. But rather what he's saying is, why don't you take a positive approach to it? Take and make a positive approach to your life as a Christian. And in doing so, you reflect Christ even more. Third thing this morning, we must control our tongues. Woo, we must control our tongues. Wow, that was a little bit easier, right? Look what it says, second part of verse 10. He says, we must keep... The, the, they, uh, let's just read the whole verse 10 there. It says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Again, principle from the Old Testament brought here um, into this era of Jesus Christ and into the New Testament. And he's saying that we must control our tongues because we all know 
Man, so many problems in life could have been avoided if we would have controlled our tongues. But so many times we, we speak the wrong words, the wrong time, the wrong way, the wrong place, and the wrong spirit. And it stirs up sinfulness and evil and, and reactions. If you're here in First Peter and you have your Bible, or even if you're in the app, you can just turn back. Uh, for me, it's like two pages. Turn back to James chapter 3. Those of you that know uh, the book of James, you know what I'm getting to. James chapter 3 has a whole section here called Taming the Tongue. Listen to what he says. Beginning with verse 4, he says, Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large, they are driven by strong winds. They are steered by this very small thing called what? A rudder, wherever the pilot wants it to go. And likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider that a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. It is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Those are strong words about such a tiny part of our body, the tongue. And if you skip down to uh, verse 8 there, he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Look at verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness, his creation. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be Oh, that we would tame the tongue. And let me just let you know a little secret. It's not just Peter and James that talk about this in the Bible. All throughout Scripture, it says, watch your words. Watch your words, Christians, because the world is watching. Watching how you will react when someone calls you out. Sometimes I think it's not even just the tongue today. Sometimes I'm thinking we need to do it with our fingers and our thumbs, right? Sometimes those thoughts, I mean, that's where the words come out. It's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Scripture says. And so it's not just about tongues and words, it's about our communication. And sometimes we're, before we send that text, that email, before we post that next thing online, just remember, he's saying that we are to control, bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Keep it from evil and from deceit. We must control our tongues, our communication. Fourth thing this morning, we must do good and hate evil. Do good and hate evil. Everybody's like, amen on that? Yeah. Everybody agrees with that? But do we apply it? Do we live it out? We must do good and hate evil. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We have to do good and hate evil. This is called walking out your repentance. 
When you come to Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins. You repent of the evil that's in your life, that you've done in your life, and you walk away from it. You turn away from sin, and you turn toward righteousness. You turn toward God. The best illustration I always give for repentance is if you're going your way in life, and God calls you, and you said, I'm going to repent. If you're moving towards sinfulness, when you repent, you turn, and you go the other direction. Now you're going toward God. And most people want this, right? But what happens? Then we choose sin again. Whoa, back the other way. Oh, but I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn back to God. Then I chose sin again. Then I repent and turn back to God. And then I go to sin, but then I'm back to God. And yeah, I'm getting dizzy. And some of us, if we're being honest, we do this routine 27 times a day. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't. The Bible says repent. In fact, the apostle Paul says it this way. He says, I die daily. He dies daily to sin in his life. It's a daily choice to repent. If you think, yo, I just repent one time in my life, and that's it. I repent, I, 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 I accept Christ as my Savior, I, I'm baptized, and then that's it. That's the last time I'll repent in my life. No. Satan will come knocking on your door. He will attack you. And there will be a time when you give into sinfulness. But... That should be diminishing in your life in holiness and righteousness. should be on the increase in your life the longer you walk with Jesus Christ. And if you feel like this morning, like, well, that's not me, man. I feel like I was just the same as I was. It's time to mature. It's time to grow up. It's time to take this faith seriously. And all the motivation that you need to do that is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. To look upon the cross and look upon the empty tomb and say, I accept that. And through the power of the resurrection, I'm going to walk out this new life in Christ Jesus. We must do good and hate evil. Let me tell you what the real problem is here, I think. As I thought about this more and more. Do good and hate evil. We would all, yeah. There's probably no one here that thinks the opposite, right? Is do evil and hate good. I mean, just, just inside a core person, you're probably like most people. You know, 99.8% of people on the earth are going to say, yeah. But I wonder for Christians if it's really this. Do good, yes, you want to, and you do sometimes, hate evil. Do you really hate evil? Or if you're being really truthful right now, do you kind of like evil sometimes? Maybe it's not, maybe that's too strong. I don't like evil. Might allow it a little bit on my television or on my phone, but... He's using this language here, Peter is, 100% on purpose. He didn't say, hey, like good and hate evil. He said, you're going to do good and you're going to hate evil. You're actually going to detest the things that God detests. And you're going to hate evil not only for what it is, but for what it does to you in your life and what it does to your loved ones and what it does to other people. How many people in their lives are spun out of control because of sin and evil? Church, let's hate evil. Let's get serious about evil. Let's turn our backs on evil, repent, and move toward God and say goodbye to evil. Whatever you need to do, whatever radical thing that requires you to do, maybe you're not on your phone anymore. Maybe you, maybe you remove that app. Maybe it's something online. Maybe it's something that you're watching and consuming. Maybe it's your patterns of relating within your family or within your marriage. Maybe it's the words flying out of your mouth, as we just talked about the tongue. But we must do good and hate evil. Repent, turn away from sin, and turn toward God. Fifth thing this morning. We must be prepared to testify for Christ. 
We must be prepared to testify on behalf of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's see what it says here in verses 13 through 17. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. If you have to pay a price for doing the right thing, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Did you notice that's in quotation marks? Again, again, Peter is, is again quoting the Old Testament. That, 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 that line right there comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And what's he talking about there? He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So he's talking there, he's leading in there with persecution, and he's saying to revere Christ as Lord and to always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared with your testimony to testify about who Christ is and what he has done in your life. And you have to be prepared to do this. And you have to be able to stand firm even when the suffering, even when the persecution, even when you're knocked down from three rungs of coolness according to the world standards because you are standing up for your witness and your testimony in Christ Jesus. You know what this reminded me of was the early church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, let, let me set it up for you. In Acts chapter 4, but you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2, the church gets its birth. 3,000 people were baptized into Christ Jesus that day. You go on, then, then, then just a couple chapters later, it says 5,000 more. And that was just counting the men. By this time, most scholars believe the church in Jerusalem was running 25,000 people. 25,000 Christ followers now in Jerusalem. They're causing quite a stir. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, said, I thought we took care of this. I mean, the Jesus guy, we killed him. But he came back to life. And then after we killed him, he came back to life. Now his followers, they just keep speaking in his name. And then what happened between Acts 2 and Acts 4 is this guy who'd been, they said he was over 40 years old, that, that all of his life he'd been crippled. He'd been at this gate begging, begging for money just to make it by the day. Peter and John come up to him. They walk up to him. These are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and, 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 and leaders of the early church. And, and they walk up, and, and Peter says to him, hey, silver and gold, I don't have any. But what I have, I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy goes, okay. And he stands up and he walks. And then it says he was jumping and running and leaping and praising God. So he's, you know, it's like, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He's just, I mean, who wouldn't? You've been, you've been on the ground. You've been crippled for 40 years through the power of Jesus just like that. Your whole life changes. Your whole existence changes. And so there's this powerful testimony. Now there's this guy running around saying, look what Jesus has done for me. I mean, the church is growing. Got 25,000 people making some noise in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin is like, this is out of control. So they bring, they bring Peter and John in in chapter 4. They jail them. And they whip them and beat them a little bit. They stand before them. They, they say, uh, you know, quit speaking in the name. And they're like, what, you know, what, the name, you know, Jesus, quit speaking in the name. They don't even say the name. They say, hey, the name, don't, don't preach, don't talk about, don't mention the name anymore. It's interesting because the Jewish Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council, and they're in this power and control struggle at this time. It, it, it says that they took note that Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus, which gave them all the power. Everyone living in Jerusalem, it says, uh, knew this was a notable sign when that crippled guy was, was uh, healed. And, and man, what were they going to do? 
And then if you go to Acts 4.21, it says, after further threats, they let them go. I imagine what those threats were like for Peter and John. Listen, okay? Don't speak in the name anymore. If you speak in the name anymore, we'll, we'll crucify you. What we did to Jesus, we'll do it to you. So don't speak in the name anymore. No more testimonies, no more witnessing, no more. Don't do it anymore. And then what you get, beginning at verse 24, and the subheading here says the believers pray, is really it's like the first recorded prayer of the church. The church had been praying, trust me, for two chapters they've been praying. They weren't surviving if they weren't praying. But you get here to chapter 4, and, and it says the believers pray, and it's like the first recorded prayer of the church. What are they going to pray for? They've just been beaten. They've been locked up. They've been threatened. They've been thrown back. They say, don't speak in the name. You get down to Acts 4.29, and this is what they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Wow. Boldness. Boldness. Boldness just about got you killed. What are you praying for? How would we pray today? Oh, Lord, give us a hedge of protection and protect us and keep us safe, Lord. Keep us safe. And you know, We don't pray for boldness. Religious liberty is being taken away today. We don't pray for boldness. We just pray, keep us safe. Make sure you don't come in my home and take my Bible or take my kids. You know, I mean, just keep us safe, Lord. Pray the, pray the hedge of protection. Oh, I'm praying the cinder block wall of protection around me and my family. And we pray these help us, love us, these selfish prayers. And yet these people are about the gospel. And their witness and testimony is going to be powerful. And they say, hey, Lord, help us do it with even greater boldness than before. And I wonder if that's what Peter's, Peter's referencing there. As Peter writes in chapter 3, and quoting Isaiah chapter 8, he says, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, Christians, revere Christ as Lord. Fear, fear Jesus Christ as your Lord more than you fear the government. Fear Jesus Christ as Lord more than you do any, any human counsel or authority. Fear the Lord. Always be prepared. To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What does it say there? It says be prepared. So if I catch you in the lobby after church, I can ask you, why do you have the faith that you have? And you're prepared, right? Right? Everybody shake your head yes. Everybody say it. Always be prepared. Say it. Always be prepared. Are you prepared? Yikes. Some of you be honest, right? You're like, man, I am not I don't know what I would say. I know you got your, you know, your Holy Spirit people. Well, the Holy Spirit will just take over my tongue and it'll just happen. And Okay, I believe God works in the preparation too. He wouldn't be telling us to get prepared, okay? Holy Spirit can work in the preparation. Now, Holy Spirit can open up a supernatural way in a supernatural conversation with supernatural words. Trust me, okay? Happens to this guy all the time. It's supernatural. It's weird. But God also works in the preparation, that's why I prepare sermons. You'd be amazed how through study of the word and prayer and studying the scripture during the week, how the Holy Spirit can work in the preparation of this too and can work in the app and work in the notes that you're taking and, 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 and all kinds of things. And so we're not gonna put God in this box, but we need to be prepared to share. And it says that when you're sharing, do this with what? Gentleness and respect, keep, keeping a clear conscience so that those who may speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's really hard to criticize someone who's living their life right and who's doing good. 
Someone who's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Hard to hate on those people, right? Hard to slander those people. And that's what we're called to do and to be in Christ Jesus. And he says, it is better for you if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You will suffer for doing evil. (laughs) There's no question. But some of you may actually suffer for doing good. He says, hey, it's good. It's going to be a blessing to you. Trust Peter. He knows. (laughs) He knows. He's been beaten a few times, threatened a few times. Got some chinks. Got Got some scars on his body to prove it. He knows, hey, in the long run, it's going to be a blessing. Get through it. We must be prepared to testify for Christ. Last thing this morning. As he ends this time, he ends this chapter, he ends this this thought process here. We get to verses 18 to 22. and, And he wants us to remember everything that's happened so far in this book. Remember the motivation. He says, his point here is to remember the gospel and your baptism. Remember the gospel. Remember the good news about Jesus Christ. Remember his death, burial, and resurrection. And remember your baptism. Remember the meaning of your baptism. Let's read, beginning with verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, it's the gospel being presented right here again. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to all those who were locked away in the sinfulness patterns in their lives. Verse 20, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It's interesting that he, that he references that there, that God waited patiently. God, God waited patiently. Genesis chapter 6 is when Noah and the ark happens. Six chapters into the Bible, we've already screwed it all up. We have totally messed up what God had created. And God says, hey, I'm going to destroy the earth. But Noah, you're going to be the remnant. You're the only righteous one there is. He proves it by building this boat. Many scholars believe for a long time, years and years and years. He builds this boat. Everybody's making fun of him. And then it begins to rain. The whole time, all those years he was building the boat, anyone could have come to God. But it was only Noah and his family that was found faithful. And Noah gets credit for that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The faith, like Noah. And God waited patiently. Many people today will say, well, hey, why hasn't Jesus come back? I mean, if you read the New Testament, these guys think he's coming back next week, next month, within the year. Why isn't Jesus coming back? What, what's, why, why is God waiting so long? And it's amazing if you read not only 1 Peter, which is what we're in now, but you go over to 2 Peter, and you go to chapter 3, verse 9. Peter later writes this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And he's talking about the promise of Christ's return, the second coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Physically, he's coming a second time. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Perhaps God is slow in returning Christ to the world because he's waiting. He wants as many of his children to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel as is possible. And just like the people in Noah's time that were told, hey, 
Get on the boat. Get on the boat. But they didn't. Let's continue reading there. It is only a few people, eight in all, that were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels and the authorities and the powers in submission to him. You see, this imagery that he gives us here, going back to the time of Noah, Peter's talking about here, he's again, bringing the Old Testament into the New Testament in light of Jesus Christ being the sacrifice. You see, the sin-filled earth was buried in water, in the, floods, in the waters of the flood. Just like when you get baptized, you're buried under the waters of baptism. And Noah and his family were brought through the floodwater time, and they were saved, and they get off the ark. And just like that, we go under the watery grave of baptism, and the scripture says that we are raised to walk in newness of life, and it's all made possible through your faith in Jesus Christ. The sad thing is, and it hurts my heart, many people today, they don't take baptism seriously. I mean, they just don't take baptism seriously. This was a very serious thing in the early church. For some reason today, some people see baptism as an option. Oh, it's just, just optional. You don't have to get baptized. It in the New Testament, we, we don't see a record of unbaptized believers. They weren't going around saying, oh, hey, are you the baptized or the unbaptized variety? Are you? No, it was just expected. You're gonna, who would not want to clothe themselves with Christ, right? I mean, well, and yet many Many times I don't think we make it as serious today. But it was a serious matter in Peter's time. It was a serious matter in the church. Baptism meant a clean break from your past. It was symbolic of your repentance and salvation in Christ Jesus. This would include sometimes them making a break from their family them making a break from their friends, them walking away from their job, maybe a romantic relationship, but baptism meant a clean break from the past. You are buried under the watery grave of baptism with all the sinfulness buried and being washed away. Candidates for baptism also in the early church were carefully interrogated because of their decision to clothe themselves with Christ. It was a serious step of consecration unto the Lord. And when you were baptized, the body would see it as you are all in. You are a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Paul gives us this beautiful illustration of this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, he says this. What shall we say then? He's talking to the Christians here. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, more sin, more grace, right? A lot of people like to live that way. What does Paul say to that? He says, by no means, by no means will we have that mindset. We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you understand why Peter here in the middle? And all the teaching that he's done and all the call that he's given us to be holy and a royal priesthood and to be submissive to authorities and that Christ is a living hope. And through all this right here in the middle, he says, I want you to remember two things. I want you to remember the gospel and I want you to remember your baptism. Remember the gospel. Remember your baptism. A few years ago, we did a, a couple years ago, within the last couple years, we did a a sermon. I don't know if you guys remember this, but we got these rocks. We had hundreds of them, hand-lettered. just says remember on it. I have mine on my desk. We were talking earlier backstage in the green room with the worship team, and a couple of them said, oh, yeah, it's on my windowsill at the house, or I have this in my car in the, in the cup holder, or I have this somewhere. And, and what we did with this was um, there, there was a, a passage of Scripture that we encountered that talked about living stones, that we like living stones or living witnesses testifying for Christ. And we taught about that. We said sometimes God just wants us to remember, right? He wants us to remember. So we called these the remember rocks. And, and we handed them out to people and said, hey, when you see that rock and you see that word remember, remember who Christ is. Remember, you are a living stone. You are a living testimony for Jesus Christ. And really, Peter, Peter talked about that earlier, that we always need to be ready to give an account for the faith that we have. But how he ends this chapter, I think, is so, so purposeful and so strategic because he says, in 18 and 19, he says, hey, I want you to remember Jesus Christ. I want you to remember the gospel, the good news, that he died. He died to sin. He suffered. He died in the body and was raised to walk through the power of God. You that have experienced the watery grave of baptism have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And you need to be motivated to remember those things, to remember the gospel, to remember your baptism. So I want you to go back there for a moment. Do you remember what it was like when you got baptized? I totally remember. It's a long time ago for me. I was 12 years old. But I totally remember my baptism. I remember how I came to that decision to repent of my sins and to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was at church camp at uh, Camp Sooner in Pink, Pink, Oklahoma, near Tecumseh. And I, I was there. A guy by the name of Paul Crosby was preaching a sermon on a Thursday night, last night at camp. I've been white knuckling it for about three nights. That's when you hang on to the pew in front of you and you don't move. But what we did back then is we had a time of invitation and they played a song. It was usually a song of repentance. And then you were asked, if you want to make a decision for Christ, if you feel like Christ is moving in your life, then come forward. I took a lot out of a 12-year-old boy. But that night when Paul was talking, it was like he was talking directly to me. I mean, it was like there was no one else there. Everything he said, I just started crying. I was stricken to the heart, and I knew. I mean, I, I was a church kid. You know, I'd grown up in the church, but I'd never made that decision for myself. And so I, I did. I made the decision. I walked forward. I remember getting down front and going, what have I done? <laughs> crying in front of all my friends and in front of the girls that I like. And you know, I just... What have I done? Sitting on the front row, youth minister comes over, starts talking to me. I'm like, what did I just do? But I knew. It's like, I need to give my life to Jesus. I remember we stayed in cabin two at camp sooner that year. 
Uh, that was about the furthest cabin from the outdoor amphitheater. I mean, you talk about being distracted when you come to Jesus Christ. I mean, mosquitoes flying. We're in an outdoor amphitheater. They sing the song. I go down front. But me uh, and a couple of my friends, a few of my friends, a pack of us walking all the way across camp to cabin two. I remember Corey Bricks, our children's minister, was there with me. Scott Truman was with me. We're walking back. And I just remember kind of giving my testimony about what God had convicted me of and how I just wanted to live for him, how I love Jesus so much and just, just appreciated what he had done for me. I want to get baptized that night, and they make you call your parents. So I called my parents, and my parents were like, hey, uh, we want to see it. <laughs> I mean, you're our first, first child, and man, we don't want to miss that. If we drive down there, it's going to be like two hours away. It's going to be like midnight. I mean, you know, it's like, why don't you just wait and come home? Do it in your church, you know? I was like, okay, that'd be cool. That'd be cool to do it at church on Sunday. And I got back and I remember they gave me this book, this baptism book. And they're like, we really want you to work through the book before you get baptized. I'm like, come on. I wanted to do this Thursday night at like midnight. Okay. Don't make me, but I did the book and it was great to just make sure I understood everything. I, I understood why they did that. And I believe it was August 12th, 1987, right over here in this very baptistry, I was baptized into Christ Jesus. And I remember what it was like. I remember going under the water, feeling like finally I'm just be washed white as snow, washed my sins away, coming out and thinking, now, second chance here. Walk it out in newness of life. I remember what that meant. And I think that's what Peter's saying here is, hey, remember. Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember, maybe you need to watch that beating crucifixion scenes from Passion of the Christ to remember what Christ really did for you. And then remember what it was like, how excited you were to clothe yourself with Christ. He's calling us to remember. Remember what that felt like? Remember how excited you were to walk out the next day and the rest of your life? Get back there. Get back there. Remember. Remember.